Hello, and welcome to State of Crime. One state, two murders, murderers. We like to mix it up a little bit. Lots of crime. Hi. Do we have names today? Uh, we do. With Kaylin and <laughs> How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm tired. I yeah. was up too late. It's weird. We're, we're recording on a different day than we yes. normally do this week. And much then, earlier than we normally do. Uh-huh. Which is why coffee is involved. Yes. <laughs> Normally it's Red Bull because it's in the evening. But That's right. It's it's early enough yes. for coffee. And I did make sure she had her drink in a safe location before we began. So no more tragic drink <laughs> incidents. I can't believe you left that in. That was awesome. So <laughs> I felt like I had to. It was it was good. I listened to it a couple of times and I was like, nah, I started not? laughing so hard when I was, I was like, <laughs> oh my god, she did no editing whatsoever, <laughs> and I kind of love it. Yeah. So, um, how's your week been? Better than the last couple of times well, you've asked. Well, that makes me happy. It's been. Yay. I, well, part of it might just be because I didn't have to go to work today. Yeah. And then this last week of work's been pretty good. So I'm, I'm pretty, pretty okay. Yay. Better than normal. Well, that makes me happy. Me too. Well, today we are going to the Lone Star State of Texas. And I know we're both pretty excited about our cases. Uh-huh. So I know, I can't remember when, but I know... Well, actually, I think it's popped up a couple of times when I've been doing research on various things. Of course, it always pops up that like Texas has, you know, is one a state with is one of the states with the most serial killers, okay. which is kind of a, a well duh statement because Texas is also one of the most populous states, yes. you know, in the union. So that's not so surprising. But I thought it was interesting that you and I, without consulting each other. We're both kind of doing serial case, serial killer cases. Yeah. Well, so I this wasn't the case I picked was not the one that I originally was going to do. Same. I was originally going to cover. Oh no, his name's going to pop out of my head. Oh. Charles Whit Whitmore is that his name? Oh, Whitmore? the yeah, one yeah, yeah. who he did the uh, mass shooting on the top tower. Of, yeah, which is tower. considered to be one of the first mass shootings mm-hmm. in American history. But I remember we had brought that case up at one point during one of your mass shooters, mm-hmm. and it's a great case if anybody wants to go look at it. Oh yeah, he, it was terrifying. so in depthly planned. Yes, and it it yeah, it was a lot. But mm-hmm. I ended up changing my mind. Good. And now I'm covering something else that I'm pretty excited about. I changed mine too. I also, I can't remember the name of the guy I was going to do now, but he was actually like a, a serial child killer. And I was like, uh-huh. I just, nah. Although this one is Dean also Coral? pretty awesome. Might have been. He was in Houston. I don't know. That's what you, you texted me. Dean yes. Coral. Yeah. Dean Coral. Sorry. Thank you. And then I was like, Ugh. so I started doing a research. I was like, I just don't want to be in this place, you know? And so. I'm surprised you would have, you would have even considered to do just, a serial kid. Yeah. I don't know. And so, but this one was interesting to me. Um, again, when I first started my research, uh, one of the, you know, things that popped up was, oh, you know, America's first serial killer. And I was like, so I started looking. I was like, wait a minute. I had done the Benders just a couple episodes mm-hmm. again. And they actually predate this case. And yeah. so I like people like to throw that term around. And mm-hmm. so um, I did a lot of video research on this particular case just because uh there was an excellent documentary about it on pbs okay where they also well i'll get into that a little bit more i don't want to give away too much but and then i also watched a 
talk that was given by a man who's considered to be one of the foremost experts on this case in the country because he's written a very, very detailed, in-depth um, book about it. Okay. And so it was really fascinating that way. But on the PBS documentary that I was watching, one of the things that I really appreciated was one of the people being interviewed. You know, he said, serial, you know, we often like, Jack the Ripper, for instance, mm -hmm. often gets touted as like, you know, the first big serial killer. Mm -hmm. And I mean, H.H. Holmes also. H.H. Holmes, lot. who actually H.H. Holmes was after Jack the yeah. Ripper. And really, Jack the Ripper, I mean, A, low body count. I mean, not yeah. to be too gruesome, but I think he, we know six murders that are, you know, actually attributed to him. I, I may be off on my number there a bit, but. Um, we have others that have much higher, higher body yes. counts. And yeah. the thing is, we have had, ser you know, the one he said, we've probably had serial killers almost as long as we've had humans. Well, that it's, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. you know, we just like to throw first out there a lot. So my case, though, actually does have some ties to Jack the Ripper, not in reality, okay. although later on there were like, so... My case takes place, the first murder happens on the 30th of December, 1884. Okay. The last on Christmas Eve of 1885. So we have just under a year mm -hmm. of activity here. Um, eight people in total are murdered. Okay. And um, Jack the Ripper is active from the 7th of August to the 10th of September in 1888. So... Um, so it's a very short period, actually, for Jack the Ripper. And it's after this case. And in fact, when Jack the Ripper first becomes active, there were some stories that were circulated at the time that were trying to connect the two, that were saying that this man who was, or this killer who was active in Austin, Texas, uh, in 1884 to 1885, had jumped on a boat, moved to the Whitechapel area of London, <laughs> become Jack the Ripper, which... No, well, that's not true. I mean, yeah. that, you know what I'm saying? But at the time, that narrative fit for a number of reasons. Well, but. and have you, I don't know if you've seen people try to connect Jack the Ripper to being the same person as H.H. H. Holmes. Yes, yes, I have. Uh, yeah. And, and a couple of others as well, by mm -hmm. the way. So, and I think sometimes it's just fun to go down those rabbit holes. Yeah. And all of those sorts of things. But, so... My case, like I said, opens on the 30th of December in 1884. A 25-year-old African-American woman named Molly Smith is working as a cook for a family. And she goes to bed that night next to her live-in lover. And he actually wakes up the next day covered in blood runs asking for help says that he was knocked out during the night and molly is not in their bedroom hmm. they go back their bedroom is in disarray there's blood everywhere molly's battered body is found in an alley she is dead she's apparently been killed with a hatchet or axe of some sort there's a gaping wound in her hmm. head yeah it's very ugly um the police did bring in bloodhounds to try to catch a scent of a killer mm -hmm. There was so much blood that the hounds were completely confused. They could not catch a scent oh of a gosh. human. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it is gruesome. So my case is called 
the Texas Servant Girl Murders is also known as the Servant Girl Annihilator, which is the name that was given to this killer by <clears throat> a writer named O. Henry, who some people might be familiar with. He's infamous for writing short stories that have twist endings. So, okay. And he was living in Austin at the time and came up with this nickname. So most people know Austin, Texas, right? You know, mm -hmm. they've got the Keep Austin Weird campaign. It's the capital city of Texas. Um, at the time of the murders, though, <clears throat> even though it's the capital city of Texas, it's pretty small. There's only 17,000 people living in, in Austin at the time. It's, you know, a little over 20 years after, it's about 20 years after the Civil War. Civil War ends in April of 1865. And you do have a large number of African-Americans living in the city. And Austin seems to be one of those places where it was kind of a mixture. You know, in some parts of the city, there's fairly decent relations. But of course, as okay. with so many places and so much of American history, there's a lot of racism and issues like that as well. And those... Those things definitely play into this case in various ways. Okay. Okay. So, <clears throat> and as with any growing town, you know, like I said, Austin is the capital city of Texas, but of course there's parts of town that you don't want to go into and all, all of that sort of thing. Now, leading up to the very gruesome bloody murder of Molly Smith, Throughout 1884, there had been a large number of home invasions, attacks specifically on servant women, most of whom were African-American. And again, a lot of servant women, you know, women who were working in the homes of others were African-American. Mm -hmm. um, and if they were white women working there, they were very often new um, arrivals in the country, right? Okay. They're, they're immigrants. So. Okay. Um, so after the murder of Molly Smith on this Christmas Eve, there's nothing else for five months. Okay. Things are kind of quiet and then things really pick up. All right. Okay. So on 19 March of 1885, two Swedish servant girls. So our first victim is African-American. Our next two are these two Swedish servant girls. However, they're not murdered, but they are seriously wounded. And they are often assumed to be the victim of the same killer. Okay. okay? On the night of... And then our next victims are all African Americans. Okay. So Eliza Shelley is murdered on the night of May 6th, 1885. Okay. Irene Cross is murdered on the night of May 22nd, 1885. And her murder was done mostly with a knife. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about the MO of our killer in a little bit. And the other thing that was really unusual about Irene Cross's murder is she was scalped. Ew. So, yes. A woman named Clara Dick was seriously wounded in August of 1885. Okay. And then this murder was the one that I think, of course, I find it the worst. 
um, a girl named Mary Ramey was sleeping next to her mother. And here's the other thing about these murders. Almost all of the, our victims are sleeping in their beds when they're attacked. Most often they're sleeping with other people, which again, wouldn't have been that unusual during the time. You know, we're so used mm -hmm. now that everyone has their own bed. You know, back then it was just a matter of space. People often slept together. Yeah. Now, a lot of these are women who are sleeping with significant others or husbands. Mm -hmm. um, or in this case with Mary, she's only 11. <laughs> she's sleeping with her mother. And her mother <coughs> is also seriously wounded in the attack. Mary is murdered. And as many of these victims were, she is also raped. So, um, yeah. On the night of September 28th, Gracie Vance is murdered. And that same night, um, Gracie actually... So by the 28th of September, 1885, when Gracie is murdered, you know, Austin is living in fear. And... and even in the months prior to that, they had been, as, as the killings had started happening more often. And people were, in fact, starting to purposefully sleep in groups. Yeah. And that was the case of Gracie. She was sleeping with three other women, and they were also sleeping with a man, you know, not in a sexual way, but just yeah. for protection. Like, yeah. he was supposed to be protecting them. Um, his name was Orange <laughs> Washington. Okay. Um, he was also murdered oh. during the attack. And the two other women that she was with, Lucinda Body and Patsy Gibson, were seriously wounded. Huh. Then things fall down again. And then on Christmas Eve, the 24th of December, 1885, two white women are murdered about an hour apart. Wow. The first that is escalated. A, yes. And this is also very similar to Jack the Ripper, where mm -hmm. he did this too. You know, he started killing closer and closer together. And I believe towards the end, there were two victims in one night. Um, so Susan Hancock is murdered. She had been sleeping with her daughter. Okay. And was, again, same M.O. And then the last was a 17-year-old woman. She was married. Her name was Eula Phillips. And... As is often the case, again, historically, you can have a whole lot of women of color murdered. In this case, it did make the headlines. People were in an uproar and everything. But it's really the murders of Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips that bring this to a fever pitch. And I'm going to spend some time talking about Eula just because her case ends up in the largest trial that's associated with this. Okay. And it also, I think, plays into a lot of other, what do I want to say, sort of issues that you and I have also addressed with a lot of other cases. Yeah. That we've talked about. Okay. Okay. So, with all of these murders, there are a lot of similarities. Nearly all of them, like I said, the victims are in their beds, mm -hmm. okay, for the most part. They're usually sleeping. Almost all of them are hit in the head. Now, some of them, there were sandbags used, it looks like, to initially knock out the victims. 
and then sharper instruments were used later on but almost all of them there's probably a hatchet maybe a small axe that's used in the murder many of them like a few of the victims were described like their heads were almost split in two Oy. so yeah this was very graphic um many of them had some sort of like stab wounds on the body meaning there was probably a knife used mm -hmm. and like we said the the one case of um irene cross it seems like there was only a knife used and she's the one who is also scalped she's the only victim <laughs> yeah that that happens too i know and then there were many of the victims as well that it was recorded a that some sort of a sharp pointed metal instrument probably an ice pick or at least yeah maybe without the Oy. handle but at least the metal part of an ice pick was shoved through their ears <gasps> and that was the case with 11 year old mary rainey oh and in addition many of these victims were raped most of them probably after they had been incapacitated and or killed so there's a lot here that's really creepy and almost all of them even though they started out in bed were dragged from their beds to other locations like Jeez. we said you know Mo Molly yeah. Smith is found out in the alley and uh, 11 year old Mary's found in um, an adjacent building to where she had been sleeping hmm. so these are just horrible yeah now we look at this and we think, oh, serial killer. You know, and like I said, from the get-go, I, I used that term. Mm -hmm. At the time, the Austin police, which consisted of 12 people, <laughs> Jeez, okay. are treating each of these cases as independent murders. Why? Good question. Um, probably because... As we've often talked about, serial killers just aren't in the public imagination. Yeah. You know, I think one of the reasons that Jack the Ripper often gets so much attention as being like, you know, quote unquote first or the first well-known serial killer is because of the letters that are associated. Yeah. You know, the fact that you had somebody say, no, I'm doing all these murders, you know, and taking the responsibility there are in some of the newspaper reports that i saw it felt like the reporters or at least some of them were maybe focusing that this could be one person mm -hmm. but yeah the police were very don't see that doesn't seem to have been part of their thought process that's weird yeah and in fact most often they do the traditional right what's the joke we always do when a woman's killed boyfriend or husband did it exactly right? and that seems to be the mentality of the Austin Police Department of the time um, Molly Smith our first victim they arrest her boyfriend even though he himself is covered in blood and had been hit in the head um, they end up arresting over 400 different suspects oh my gosh <laughs> over the course of the year <laughs> and even with our last case of um, Eula Smith she, her husband is um, arrested and beca it becomes like this huge trial that um, is all over the country, you know, is infamous. And in fact, her husband 
is found guilty, although his conviction is later overturned. And they say, no, there's no way he did it. And yeah, yeah there probably isn't. So I think one of the reasons that the case of Eula gets so much, or sorry, it's Eula Phillips. I said Eula Smith. I apologize. So Eula Phillips, some of the things that make her trial in particular interesting and also infuriating. So her husband, James, who was just a few years older than she was, first of all, James and Eula married when Eula was only 15. There's pretty good evidence that Eula was pregnant when they got married. So it was probably, you know, his family forced him to marry her or mm-hmm. whatever. Because he got her pregnant. Right. And his father was the preeminent architect in Austin. They were a very wealthy family, very well-known family. Okay. But James very likely was an alcoholic. There's a lot of evidence he was not very kind to Eula. And the trial just becomes insane. One of the things that makes it so crazy is, like we said, the fact that you have all these other murders, including the murder of Susan Hancock, about an hour before the murder of Eula Phillips. Now, mm-hmm. Susan Hancock's husband was also arrested by the police and charged with her murder. And if you just consider the fact, in a town of 17,000, what are the odds that within an hour, two husbands are going to kill their wives? Both wake up, drag, you know, attack their sleeping wives, drag them out of their beds, rape and murder them. Do you, you know, yeah. just that on its face is ridiculous. Yeah, that's. And with the Eula Phillips case, it gets worse. These cops are fucking idiots. Yeah, well, to me. I understand, like, the time's different and they just don't know things yet, but, like, in from where I'm at, these cops are fucking idiots. You know what I mean? Well, and one of the things that, and I, you and I have talked about this before too, is that sometimes it feels like prosecutors and police departments get so caught up in just wanting to provide close a, case. A, a yes, a closed case. They just create. A scenario, yeah. Whether they do this out of malice aforethought, you know, how much of this is subconscious, how much of this is just really vile and evil planning on their part, but they just create a story and then they twist and manipulate everything to fit yeah. the story. This is definitely the case, obviously, with Eula Phillips and her husband James. And I'll tell you why. One thing I haven't mentioned yet is not only from Eula's murder, but there, from previous murders, there was a footprint found at the scene. What? And what makes the footprints unique, the perpetrator, the murderer, was not wearing shoes. So we have a print... Of his foot. Of his foot. In addition... The police had actually cut out a square from the floorboards on one of the previous murders to preserve this footprint. Wow. During his trial, they produced a footprint. They forced James Phillips to remove his shoe and sock to dip his foot in ink and make a print of his foot next to the footprint they had from one of the previous murder cases. Okay. 
but James Phillips' foot was quite a bit smaller. In addition, there were notes that were found later on that made note that there was something odd about the toes on some of the footprints found at the murder scenes. And we're going to return to that in a little bit. Okay. okay. So, but the footprint that they produced for James Phillips' trial, there wasn't anything you could see that was unusual about the toes on that particular print. Okay. Okay. And that came up later in some of the other reports from prints taken. Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> on the PBS documentary that I watched, it just, it sucked me in. It was absolutely <laughs> fascinating. For one thing, they interviewed a surviving family member who was related to Eula Phillips. Oh, wow. That's fun. Yes. And so this woman, who was this cutest little old lady, and she was talking about how growing up, you know, she had this lovely grandmother, and one time she was at her grandmother's house, and she noticed this photograph of this very beautiful young woman. And she said, Grandmother, who's that beautiful woman? And her grandmother said, That's my sister. And she said, I never even knew you had a sister. What happened to her? And she said, She was killed. And the woman asked, Well, how was she killed? And her mother, her grandmother said, I don't want to talk about it. And it just cut her off. And that was the end of the story. Well, sometime later, there was a man in Texas who was writing a book, and I also watched his talk that he gave in association with this book. His name was Skip Hollinsworth, and he contacted this woman and said, I think that your great aunt was the final victim of the servant girl annihilator because that, of course, was Eula Phillips. That yeah. was her grandmother. Now, another reason that this woman's grandmother may not have wanted to, wanted to talk about Eula is that during the trial, they dragged 17-year-old Eula through the mud. And they talked about the fact that she was having numerous affairs with multiple high-born men that she was hanging out at a whorehouse that was owned by an African-American madam, and that's where she would meet her lovers. And there was even talk that she herself was working as a prostitute. I mean, what? it was awful. And they were doing this in order to try to create some sort of a motive for James Phillips to have murdered her. Oh, that is disgusting. It is. I hate people. Right. I mean, it, 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 it was... I mean, and I it mean, was stomach churning the things they were saying about her that just, again, to build their, not, the, I mean, take away the fact that they were railroading her husband, James Phillips, you yeah. know, and in fact, almost did end up sending him to prison. Um, but like I said, it was later overturned. But the fact that they were willing to take this beautiful 17 year old girl and just say the most heinous, vile things about her to create a motive for her husband. Well, even if it was, even if it were true, like you still don't do that. She still died in a right. horrible way. Yes. 
And there's no sense in... Mm. Yes. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> and sense. again, and also, we want to also get into, you know, the fact that you have six African-American women who die, <laughs> right? Yeah. And like I said, it, at least it was reported. It did make the newspaper. I mean, today, there are huge numbers of Native American women who have disappeared and are dying in the Montana, Dakota region, um, many up in Alaska. It doesn't even make the news. Yeah. Nobody even seems to care about that. So, yeah. So, anyway, it's disheartening in this way. Anyway, after those two murders on the night of Christmas Eve, there seemed to be no other murders. Ever? Nope. What? And so this is where the PBS documentary got especially interesting to me because they're trying to figure out why. Yeah. Right? And so they did a number of things. The thing that I found super fascinating was they brought in somebody called a geographical profiler. Okay. Do you know what that is? Nope. Okay. So I think I've seen this before in movies and TV it shows. It sounds familiar, but, yeah. but nope. So what a geographical profiler does is he took the map of Austin as it existed at the time of the murders. Okay. Puts the murders in red dots, you know, on mm -hmm. the map in order. And from that, just based on where the murders are, because usually we know that serial killers work from, you know, they or work in areas that they are very familiar with. Yeah. So they were able to kind of figure out where this guy probably lived. Now, all of the murders took place fairly close to the quote-unquote bad part of Austin. So the part of Austin you want to, you know, stay out of. Yeah. First of all, they're fairly close to that. And there's also a street called Congress Avenue that runs through the here that also is very central. So they hypothesize that he either works and or lived on Congress Avenue. Huh. Okay, so they, they have that down. We know that we've got this weird foot thing, right, floating yeah. around out there. And they also, so, you know, like I said, the Austin police at the time didn't even seem to consider the fact this could all be one guy. Mm -hmm. So on the PBS documentary, what they also did, they went to a guy who had worked for like 17 years as an FBI profiler and asked him his opinion based on the victims, the fact that, like we said, you know, they all have so many things in common. He said yeah. there are some very ritualized aspects of this, you know, yeah. the dragging them from the bed, the use of a hatchet or okay. something similar to the head, the sexual assaults, most often it seems after they were dead, which is a very high risk behavior. Yeah. You know, if killing is the point... You leave, right, once they're dead. Exactly. This is part of it for him is the sexual yeah. component. Um, and he said, definitely, this is a serial killer. Yeah. And it also is somebody who is very, very strong physically. Okay. Because he's overpowering Two other people. people. Yeah, sometimes yeah. more, right? Yeah. Um, and he's dragging these bodies fairly long distances and you know we've talked before that's not the easiest thing to do yeah um so he says definitely yes it's one person because 
we know that very often killers, especially serial killers, tend to target people of their own race. He said he thought that most likely our perpetrator was an African-American himself. Now, he does kill two white women at the end, but he said that could very well be part of his escalation as well. Yeah. He's already murdered and attacked all these other people, gotten away with it. He's just becoming more emboldened. Yeah. You know? And <clears throat> so, so we narrowed it down to that. And then we know that he just stops. Which doesn't, you know, which did he get caught up? In, you know, did the police just accidentally arrest him? Yeah, because something big normally happens mm-hmm. for a serial killer to just stop, right. whether they die or someone close to them dies or they get arrested for other reasons. It's very rare that they just up and stop. Exactly. So they started doing, so they did a lot of investigating, trying to look at like arrest records mm-hmm. and things like that, you know, for. And seeing if they could find some connection. That wasn't very fruitful. But what they did find was that, and I can't remember the exact date, it was a few months after the last, uh, after Eula's murder. Okay. In a bar in Austin, Texas, an African American man was attacking a woman with a knife. And the police intervened, tried to get him to stop. They end up shooting him. Huh. This man's name was Nathan Elgin. Okay. He worked as a cook <gasps> in a restaurant <gasps> on Congress Avenue. They got him. When they did the autopsy. Did he have some fucked up feet? He was missing the small toe, the little toe on one of his feet. <gasps> they found him. So this, he seems like a really good victim. And he had, I think they did find there were some other uh, reports of him being violent towards women. You know, he, he seems like a really good suspect. Okay. So I have to say I'm pretty convinced. Yeah. It was probably him. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so even though I start when I started this case, I was like, oh, I got really into it. I was reading it, and it kept saying, you know, it was an unsolved murder. And I'm you, like, I don't usually yeah. like to do unsolved murders, and neither do you. But as I got into this, and like I said, the forensic work that they have done historically is just amazing to me. So that, I'm pretty, they got him. I'm pretty convinced that yeah. they have their guys. So, so do I. Yeah. But that's the tragic, awful, horrible story of the Texas Servant Girl Murders, also known as the Servant Girl Annihilator. Thank you, O. Henry, for that graphic title. Wow, that was... I wasn't expecting... Actually, I've never heard anything about that. Well, and that was another thing that is so interesting to me. I'd never heard anything about this case either. And Mm -hmm. on the PBS documentary that I watched, Skip Hollinsworth, who is a uh, writer for Texas Monthly, he's the one who's written the book, The uh, Midnight Assassin, that's considered to be like the definitive work on this. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I haven't read his book, 
I watched like a one hour talk he gave at a library in Austin about his book, but he didn't say who he thought the killer was or anything like that. So I want to get my hands on his book because I want to find out if he also agrees with the Nathan Elgin, you know, I feel like conspiracy that just it, it just it this point makes the most sense. It really does. But like I said, I really want to find out what he thought about it. Yeah. And do a little bit more there. But um, it, it is interesting that this case isn't better known in the United States. Mm-hmm. And once again, you know, people have said, well, <laughs> many of the victims were African American. Mm-hmm. And we all know that there's, you know, that horrific racist aspect to it. There's also, of course, the fact that just a couple years later, you do have the Jack the Ripper murders. Mm-hmm. And then, what is it, the 1893 uh, Chicago World's Fair when H.H. H. Holmes is active. And some of those things come to light as well. Yeah. That that, you know, even though at the time this was a widely reported case, other things, again, may have knocked it out of the public imagination. Yeah. So. Damn. That's a good but, one. Yeah. That was a good one. That was a good one. Thank you. Good job. Yeah. And you found that one all by yourself. I'm I so did once you. again. And I, I feel like I was really ill prepared for this one. Like I said, I took the fewest notes I've ever taken <laughs> on a case. But um, I did, like I said, the video <laughs> research I did on YouTube. And then I did read a few more things online as well. And that Nathan Elgin hypothesis, it looked like it looks like a lot of people you know, do find it pretty noteworthy as well. Yeah. So. I mean, convinced me. Yeah, me too. So, all right. And you're doing a pretty well-known case when we return to Texas. Yeah, which is not something I usually do. Right, and it's also still unsolved. Yes. Which is crazy because, again, you and I did not talk about our cases yeah, at, no, all. Not at all and once again look at how in sync we are i know and it's weird because we both do not like cold cases Mm-mm. and i feel like we've talked about that before I, I believe marie was here because she loves yes she loves cold cases those are like her favorite soon i hate and them i yeah i don't like them i, I want to like, know i don't like not having answers yeah and i mean now we're about to jump into a rabbit hole where i nobody gets answers oh so. i like it all right so make sure you join our Facebook discussion group after you like our Facebook page. Check out our Instagram and our Twitter. And if you have any suggestions, we love those. Go ahead and email us at stateofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can just message the Facebook page. We get them either way. Yep. And if you're listening on an Apple product, make sure you rate and review us because it helps us out a lot. Yeah. And thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.